Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. It's almost basically springtime here in Boston. You know, it's one of these... New England is weird. Like, you go all through through all four seasons in a week. Oh, absolutely. Yesterday it was like 20-some degrees, and I was like, I thought we were done with this winter stuff. But yeah, things are nice in uh, Boston, and uh, it's also Easter weekend, so that's exciting. Conference is going to be coming up this weekend. In fact, Derek and I, at, at the moment of this recording, we're about an hour out from conference. So we're not going to be talking about it this episode, but uh, we may have a few things to say about it for next week. So be on the lookout for that. Shall we dive into the curriculum for this week, Derek? Yeah. So before we go ahead and launch into the uh, Come Follow Me uh, material, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 30 through 36. These sections seem to be primarily focused on the preaching of the gospel. These are all basically mission calls, instructions, the promised blessings associated with it. Something that the manual makes sure to let us know is that we are in the first six months or so of the church's existence, which means all these missions are occurring within mere months of the majority of these individuals' baptisms. Like uh, Parley P. Pratt, it says, he was only a member of the church for about a month when he got called. His younger brother, Orson Pratt, is about to be called on a mission. Thomas B. Marsh was a member for even less time. He's about to go on a mission. We just got a bunch of green elders who are being sent on missions in the actual infancy of the church. So the entire experience that these elders are going through is kind of a wilderness experience in the infancy of the church. Okay, so let's look at section 31. And here this was given to Thomas Marsh and as he's uh, being called on his mission. And here's what it says in verse 9. Be patient in afflictions. Revile not against those that revile. Govern your house in meekness and be steadfast. Now, a lot of people use this, and they might even use this against minoritized people to say, well, don't, you know, don't speak up about these things. You have to be nice. But what I want to say, and here's the truth, Jesus was not nice. Mm. He was loving. He was kind. But he wasn't nice. The Jesus of the Gospels was offensive. He yeah. called people names. He mm -hmm. insulted them. He made them feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. He called them hypocrites. People accused him of blasphemy, of desecrating the temple, and so on. Yeah, he he named he obviously yeah, and so he obviously made people want to kill him. Mm -hmm. People say that in the Sermon on the Mount he was nice and mild, but even in that same sermon he actually called groups of people dogs and pigs, <laughs> namely those people who won't appreciate the truths that we find valuable. And this is in Matthew 7, verse 6, the thing that says, don't cast your pearls before swine mm -hmm. or give what is holy to the dogs. He's saying those people who aren't going to appreciate your truths just don't, don't even, oh, you know what? That has a lot of relevance for the internet, right? Putting your truth out there to get trampled on. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. anyway, now let's talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. 
This is the act that we commemorate on Palm Sunday, and this is found in all four Gospels in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Now, the Romans actually had a ceremony, a civic ceremony, that was used to honor a honor a returning successful military commander. So you can imagine Julius Caesar riding triumphantly into Rome. And it was a triumphal procession into a city surrounded by people cheering while wearing a glorious toga and a laurel crown, riding in a horse-drawn chariot while processing into the city, followed by his army, the enemies that he enslaved, and the treasures plundered from his enemies. It's this mm-hmm. big thing, right? It's, you know how the Episcopalians have processions? It's kind of almost that much pomp and circumstance. Yeah, I know nothing about Episcopalian processions, actually. Oh, it's a thing. So here, Jesus turned it upside down. He totally mocked Rome and the powers of Rome and the Roman occupation of Judea. Jesus made a direct mockery of this by riding into the city, not on a mighty war horse, but on a donkey. And Matthew even makes this comment. He says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and here's where Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9 verse 9, Mm -hmm. tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And this is in Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5. Mm. Yeah, so here he is, lowly, meek, not very uh, flashy like like Caesar. And this has got to uh, cause a stir, right? Yeah. And it's interesting to note that this is carefully planned. It's a deliberate strategy that he thought about yeah. in advance. Yeah. And it involved preparation. You can see this specifically when he tells the disciples in advance how to find the donkey. This isn't some last minute slip. Right. This wasn't done out of impulse or anger or momentary frustration. This was intentionally planned as an act of nonviolent resistance that had the effect of mocking the powers of Rome. Hmm. You know, I hate to talk about white people like I'm not one, but white people would rather be nice than be good. Oh, come on. And what I should back up and say is white people are socialized to be nice. Some of us can overcome that and some can't. It's not like a biological thing, but especially in in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, niceness and a fake superficial peace is prioritized over actual harmony. Come on. And, and th- this isn't this is what Dr. King was saying sixty years ago, mm-hmm. right? This isn't new. We're right. still on this. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so I better stop talking about that. What are your reactions to this and this idea that can be used in a very manipulative manner of oh, be Christ-like? See, I I stopped buying into that a long time ago, um, and you know I've talked about this on the show before, but. You know, I, I've talked about my experience of leaving the country when George Bush was president and then returning when Barack Obama was president for my mission. And I went to Utah and I remember, you know, wondering to myself, that man, Barack Obama, who was literally everything I was raised to be, did everything right. You know, he was charming. He was intelligent. He made history before the age of 30. You know, just the perfect black person to white people in my mind. You know what I'm saying? And then I realized that no matter how 
well, I learned to use the master's tools, I will not be able to dismantle the master's house, to quote Audre Lorde. There's just this understanding that a niceness in the church, like we're, we're a very non-confrontational people in Mormonism. That is something I picked up on pretty early. We don't like to uh, have conflict. We don't like to confront things because that would kind of destabilize our idea of what peace is supposed to look like. But something that I definitely want to talk about a little bit later is just this idea that it is very difficult to be a true peacemaker as Jesus was without telling people the truth. And uh, you have to be able to tell the truth. That is a inseparable requirement of preaching the gospel. This doesn't mean that you just say whatever you want without thinking about the consequences of what you say or how it might make people feel. But what I am saying is that it is much more important to be honest and truthful and offensive than it is to be telling a half-truth or lying to preserve this kind of false negative peace. Like I said, I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but those are those are my initial thoughts on what you had to say. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that's something that we need to keep. I'll talk about this later when we when I talk about our approaches to Scripture, but this idea of balance. Some people will hit on one truth in the Scripture and then bang on it like one key on a piano. I forgot which general authority used that metaphor. That sounds like, like something key- Holland would say. I can't remember what it was, but it's like the gospel is like this rich keyboard, and if you find one note, yeah, that one note is pretty, but that's the only note you play you've got a really distorted perspective on the gospel. And I think it's true here. We've got to to figure out, well, what is balanced elsewhere in the scriptures by something? Mm. And I want to connect this with what we have later in verse 30, uh, uh, section 31. And this talks about like what grounded Jesus in his life of witness and and, um, moral activism. He said, I mean, here's what DNC 31 verse 12 says. It says, pray always lest you enter into temptation and lose your reward. And I just want to quick note that there's a difference between praying and saying prayers. Mm. We should live a life of prayer, though that doesn't mean perpetually saying prayers as a running commentary on life. Instead, we should live life deliberately and intentionally with a prayerful posture. I think that's what it means to be yeah. always praying. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think that so much of our lives would be more meaningful and more informed by wisdom if we remembered to have a prayerful life. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was thinking to myself, um, just because of where this whole, all these sections seem to be going about being in an attitude of prayer, about being ready to preach the gospel, no matter who likes it or who doesn't. Uh, that I feel like leads really well into section 32, because this is where that hit me the hardest. If I may, Derek, unless you have anything else to go over in 31. Nope. Okay. That's all I have for 31. So this hit me probably harder than it should have, but this might be just a product of my own experience and how often I think about this show and the people that listen to it. But I was reading section 32, and a section 32, by the way, this is where uh, Parley Pratt and them are commanded to go and minister to the Lamanites. It's Parley Pratt and I don't know if it's Ziba or Ziba Peterson, but they're called to join uh, Oliver Cowdery and Peter Whitmer on their mission. And then in verse 2, 
of uh, section 32. This is what it says. And that which I have appointed unto him is that he shall go with my servants, Oliver Cowdery and Peter Whitmer Jr. into the wilderness among the Lamanites. Again, the church ain't been around but six months. Parley and them been members of the church for even less time and they're getting sent into the wilderness to minister to the Lamanites. Now the word wilderness jumped out to me because the wilderness has some scriptural significance, especially where spiritual preparation and revelation are concerned. In fact, this whole experience uh, between sections 30 and 36 of sending these green missionaries out into the world to preach the gospel seems to be very much a wilderness experience, at least where the scriptural purpose of the wilderness is concerned. The, because the wilderness is a place of struggle and of hardship and confusion, but it's also a place of purpose and problem solving. And again, Parley and them, they're mad green at this point. So this idea of the wilderness being a sort of preparation ground for these elders doesn't seem so off base at a time where the new church needs mm -hmm. the best mm -hmm. of everyone involved in order to flourish. Just a couple of years after this, we're going to get another experience like that in Zion's camp. So anyway, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the wilderness and the purpose it serves because of its appearance here and because of the kinds of people who tend to find this podcast, especially when we first got started. Uh, I don't know what your experience has been with this, Derek, but many of the people who take the time to reach out to me directly are folks who seem so happy to have found us because so much of what they've been feeling has been articulated on the show, or at, or at the very least, they feel validated in their faith journey because their own wandering in their wilderness, which can be profoundly lonely at times, they found others in the wilderness taking their same journey. They found community, and for many... That's the key to survival in the wilderness. One of my favorite things about the show is that though in mm -hmm. some ways I've lost some relationships in the pursuit of the liberation of the marginalized in the name of Christ, I have managed through this show to find other people in the wilderness on the same journey. And the journey to the promised land is much more bearable when you have a community because that separation from where you used to be and the subsequent loneliness you feel afterwards is jarring and it's mm -hmm. discouraging. And when you're in the wilderness, yeah. separated uh, from what was comfortable and familiar, those old spots where your faith used to be, you got to rely on the Lord for your peace. You have to rely on the Lord for your sustenance. You have to rely on the Lord for your companionship. That's what the uncertainties mm -hmm. of the wilderness can really do for you. I really like what Pastor Eddie Davidson said uh, with regard to this experience. He says something along the lines of, God lets you do without so you can come to know him as your provider. God lets you be lonely so that you can come to know him as your friend. God lets you be frightened and worried so that you can come to know him as your peace. God lets you be weak so that you can know his strength. Close quote. This is alluded to in a mm -hmm. uh, Deuteronomy 29, when the Lord says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. The Lord is letting the Israelites know two things. Uh, the first is that he is the one that sustained them in their sojourn through the wilderness. And the second, he teases a little bit here, but confirms in Deuteronomy 8, which is that he's trying to teach them something. He's preparing them for something. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 6. This is what he says. 
Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy, mm-hmm. thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord Thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and fear him. Close quote. And that leads kind of to this uh, other purpose of the revel- of uh, of the wilderness, which is the revelation experience. The Nephite record begins basically at the onset of Lehi's family's exodus from Jerusalem. And early on in their journey, there's a lot of revelation that is given, including the Leahona, the vision of the tree of life to both Nephi and Lehi, the instruction of where and how to get the brass plates and more. The children of Israel, same thing. The Ten Commandments happened during this journey. Uh, the Lord used his uh, revelations to help them prepare for what was to come. And what was to come in every situation, all of these wilderness experiences was a new life. That's what the wilderness seems to be about, leaving an old life behind and forging a new one with God as your primary companion. Now, it might be a bit of a stretch to say that's what was happening in these particular for these particular men involved. But you got to remember that these men were all very new in their journey in the church. They were brand new. So all of this experience of going to preach the gospel to the Lamanites, of what might be termed an unsuccessful mission to the Lamanites, this this is what led to Kirtland, the establishment of the church in Kirtland. And that was like mm-hmm. one of the biggest spots in church history now. And we know, like, we know how important that area was to church history. And we know how important these early years were to the development of the elders for their testimonies and uh, for the church. So... A lot of this experience throughout these sections just seems to be a wilderness experience, and I just wanted to point that out because it seems that a lot of people who listen to this show are in the middle of their own wilderness experience as they you know, parse their faith and determine what their faith is going to look like now or what a life is going to look like moving forward with Christ, but leaving behind these conventional notions of what it means to be a good member of the church or what it might mean to be a disciple of Christ. Do you have any initial thoughts about that? Yeah, so this reminds me a lot. I've connected the wilderness often with the concept of exile. We don't really talk about exile that much in the church, mm-hmm. but it is a very strong biblical concept, and a, a lot of the Bible doesn't even make sense unless you understand the concept of exile. Mm-hmm. And I also connect it with the closet, right? Eva Sedgwick is a queer theorist, who talks about the epistemology of the closet, how the closet is formational for the gay identity, the Western gay identity. Not all cultures and centuries construct it this way. But in many ways, my, my own identity is the product of homophobia. The whole thing about gay pride is in response to the shame of the outside world. The whole idea of coming out is in response to the closet that never should have been there to begin with. Like mm-hmm. none of the what we see as the Western gay movement or the Western gay identity would be what it is without the matrix of homophobia that was surrounding it. Mm. So what I want to say is not, but here's the other thing is not only does the closet, not only is the closet formational for the identity of gay folks, 
it's also formational for the identity of straight folks. Okay. And this is the surprising thing. Because the closet inhibits straight men from being themselves. It inhibits them. It limits what male-male friendships can be and can do. It limits what it limits everyone from being their fullest potential. And so I don't know why these straight folks want to hold on to the closet and say, "Look, let's keep these people in exile. Let's keep these people away from a fullness of life." Mm. And that also helps to make sense of when people. Through who, through no fault of their own, are not welcome in the church. Mm. Like, is it their fault that they left, or is right. it an exile that needs to be mourned and say, "Look, these folks are are have stepped outside of the church." But yeah, I really see that a lot of the vast majority of LGBT folks from an LDS background are in exile right mm. now. They're not journeying in the church, and 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 it's not a matter of oops, they just weren't good enough. It's a matter of the church wasn't good enough. Right, right. And I like that you bring that out because uh, simply because a lot of what needs to be named for these wilderness experiences, these experiences of exile is they're very often not self-perpetuated. Like people don't one day just decide they're going to go into exile. Like Mm -hmm. somebody puts them there. If not, you know, these worldly powers put them there. Maybe God puts them there. But like something puts them in that experience of wilderness or that experience of exile because it's very like nobody wants to go out there for right. it, it's not comfortable. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just glad that you brought that out because that's some that's a that's a piece of the conversation that I didn't bring up. And that's often missed during the wilderness experiences that people don't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. typically just choose to go to the wilderness or into exile. Yeah. And framing it as an exile with our LGBT friends and siblings means that, oh, this isn't just an individual failing. It is an injustice that's done to this people, not done by this people. Yeah, yeah. So that's all I had to say about exile for right now, other than this concept of exile implies an end to it, right? That this is a temporary thing that's formational for a people for a time. Mm -hmm. Babylon, the wilderness of Sinai, even crossing the plains and going to Utah, all of these end up being formational in the long run. Absolutely. Absolutely. These experiences are definitely temporary. They have a purpose. This is where the Lord shows himself to us. This is where he shows us ourselves. This is where he prepares us for a different life. This is where we learn to be sustained on him. There's always an end to these experiences of exile. There's something always on the other side, it seems. And the exile mm-hmm. or the wilderness experience, as you said, is formational to that experience. Wow. Well, we have a lot to say. Maybe we should move on. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to a section. I don't have anything else in 32, so let's go on to 33. So I'm going to start with verse 16 of section 33, and it says, And the Book of Mormon and the Holy Scriptures are given of me for your instruction, and the power of my spirit quickeneth all things, and quicken is a... a a verb meaning to make alive, okay. to be life-giving. And I see this a lot culturally in the church. People mark up their scriptures with underlines and highlights and stickers and cool things. So many of us mark our scriptures, but I want to ask myself, do the scriptures mark me? Come on. Can people... Yeah, can people see by my life, my actions and my words that the scriptures have made an imprint on mm-hmm. me? Come on, say it. Part of that imprint 
is knowing how to use the scriptures responsibly, mm-hmm. wisely, and contextually. Mm-hmm. Earlier in my life, I thought, okay, this is where I have to be a little bit embarrassing about myself. You know, I was a little bit different earlier, more naive. <laughs> you don't say. So earlier, <laughs> earlier in my life, I thought that the goal, the only thing you needed to do was to get the content of the scriptures right. And I think this is how it's really taught. We emphasize, oh, make sure you get the facts, make sure you get the content, make sure you get the doctrine, and that's what you need. That's the whole purpose of studying the scriptures is to get the content right. And under this view, as long as there's a truth in the scriptures, I was entitled to say it anywhere, at any time, to anyone, without regard to its effect. Because, well, it's there. It's in the Bible. I could, I, it's my, I, I got the content right. But when I grew more Christ-like, I put those childish things aside. I learned to live what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 13, that even if you get the doctrine right, if you don't have love, you don't get any credit for getting the doctrine right. Come on. Paul says, I'm nothing if I don't have love. I, all this other stuff doesn't matter. Yes, so instead of getting the content, just the content of the scriptures right, I'm going to propose that we have to get six things right. All right. And I made an acronym, Crater, to help us remember, because once you understand these things, it's going to blow a crater into your understanding of the scriptures. <laughs> Come right? on in here, yes. There's, yeah, so there's going to be a crater, right? It's never going to be the same again. This is so powerful. So here are the five uh, things in Crater. Content, rationale, audience, tone, emphasis, and rebuttal. So let me go through these. Content, that's basically the doctrinal content, the thing that most people think is the only thing to get right in the scriptures. But there's five other things that you have to get right if you want to get the scriptures right. And I, it took me a long time to realize this. One is the rationale. So if there's a commandment, if there's an instruction, if there's some type of wisdom, understanding the rationale behind it is very important to applying it correctly to the right people at the right time. And we might not know. We might not know the rationale. The scriptures might not even say, but if there is a rationale given in the scriptures, we should know it. Mm. The next thing, the A in crater is audience. Not everyone needs to hear the same thing. Paul wrote radically different things to different communities mm-hmm. based on what they needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Jesus, he, didn't, he said he was very different to different people depending on whether they needed to be comforted or whether they needed to be afflicted, like where they were in the power hierarchy. He was radically different to different audiences and this needs to be maintained. And I think this is the challenge of general conferences that it's so general. They can't, it can't be specific. They They needed to go out to everyone. But when we do things, and when we apply the scriptures and interpret the scriptures, we've got to get the audience right or else we don't understand it. Yeah. The next thing is tone. You can say a true thing in the wrong tone. Now, I don't want to talk about tone policing where, oh, you didn't say it nice. But it's a matter of, like, are you angry enough sometimes? Or are you strategic enough sometimes? Like, if you say a truth but it's with a tone of arrogance and a tone of superiority... I think you're falling risk of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 of getting the doctrine right, but the love wrong. So you not only have to get the content right, but you have to get the tone right. Like Paul got mad sometimes. Elder Holland gets mad sometimes. I don't know if that's always justified, but 
if you're gonna get the scripture right, you have to get the tone right too. Yeah. The next thing is emphasis. Not everything in the scriptures is equally important. You can bang on one note, it, but if that's not what the scriptures emphasize, if that's not what the scriptures prioritize, you're getting the scriptures wrong. Mm-hmm. And like I said, all of all. these, <laughs> yeah, all of these things are designed to say you don't, you don't just have to get the content right. You have to get all these other things right or else you're not getting the scriptures right. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about is the R in, the second R in creator is rebuttal. Because to get one piece of the scripture right, you have to take into account the other scriptures that may balance it or may harmonize it with some way or that may add additional clarification or conditions on it. Because there's contrasting things in the scriptures and if you only know one of them and you don't take into account the other, you may not see how it's balanced or reversed or amended by some other, what I'm going to call rebuttal elsewhere in the scriptures. Mm Mm-hmm. And just one example of this is the reviling piece. Yes, there's stuff that says to revile. Uh, Oops, there's stuff that says not to revile, but then there's other cases where you do need to make a strong stand and offend people. Yeah. The uh, admonition is to be childlike in your faith, but then there's also the thing in 1 Corinthians 13 that says, well, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I reasoned as a child, but when I became an adult, I put away those childish things. Mm -hmm. Like there's faith. So someone's using this childlike faith to be anti-intellectual and say, nope, you don't need to have any sophistication. You don't need to have any nuance to your faith development. You don't need to be developed because you need to be childlike. And like, you fell into the crater Mm -hmm. because you didn't get the tone right. You didn't get the audience right. Who needs to hear the childlike piece versus who needs to hear the uh, adult be adults? Uh, who, where's the emphasis? Where's the being mindful of any response or rebuttal elsewhere in the scripture? Like, that's a case where someone can get the content right, but they got the rater, R-A-T-E-R part of it wrong, and really end up having an unhealthy application of a scripture that otherwise would be valuable. Mm. I love the crater, first off. Brilliant acronym. I can't believe that, I don't know how long you've been cooking this up, but... You know, I know that since yesterday, since yesterday, y'all know that yeah. y'all know that part of the Avengers where like somebody asked Tony Stark, when did you become an expert in nuclear physics, physics or something like that? And then Tony Stark is just like last night. And that's, how, <laughs> that's what I feel like Derek is doing right now. He literally just created this incredible acronym just yesterday. I love it, man. I think it really gets to the heart of what we need to be considering more when it comes to how we read our scriptures, because you're you're totally right. A lot of people focus too much on the content without looking at all these other uh, contextual items of the audience, the tone, uh, who's, I mean, there's just a lot going on here. So I'm just glad that you brought in uh, these other elements that help us read the scriptures in a way and understand the scriptures in a way that allows us to get it right because too many people that are mm-hmm. focusing on just the content, you know, are using them in a way that can harm people. There's this principle in Protestant hermeneutics that I really like that I haven't really named very often, but it's that you should interpret the obscure passages in scripture, the harder ones in light of the clear ones, like the clear ones, we know what they mean. And if there's some something we don't understand, something that's hard or difficult or obscure, 
or unknown or ambiguous in this other text. We shouldn't use this more obscure passage to rule the clear one. It should go the other way around. And I think this is so common with the clobber passages. People will debate endlessly um, over a meaning of a very rare Greek or Hebrew word that we aren't even sure what it means or what it would have meant in that context. And people will debate one side or the other. But like, why not just go to all are like unto God? That's clear. That is so clear that even a five-year-old child can understand that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to have a PhD in New Testament, a PhD in Greek, to be able to say something authoritatively about these verses that are used against us. You just need to be able to say, look, male and female, go back to what Paul said in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither male nor female. Mm -hmm. That's one of my verses that I'm going to go to along with all are alike unto God. Mm-hmm. And along with what we see in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for the human to be alone. Mm-hmm. When, it, when there's a world of people saying that I should be alone. Mm-hmm. Like those are my, I can understand those verses. Like there's some other verses that we're not even going to be able to historically reconstruct exactly what it meant. Yeah. And even if we could, it will be tempered and balanced and contextualized by this overarching principle of liberation and equality equality and peace that we have. So that's where this rebuttal piece comes in in the crater. Yes, sir. I like that. If I could also go back to this point you made at the beginning of this discussion, uh, we talk about how you talked about how we mark our scriptures, but uh, we don't ask often enough to the scriptures mark me. And this uh, reminded me of something that occurred about two years ago. And you were there, Derek. But, uh, you know, I gave a talk during Black History Month on racism and I had, you know, I was scared to give the talk in the first place, but the talk was well received Like, I was shocked, actually, at how well-received the talk Mm -hmm. was. And I noticed something in the conversations that came after my talk, particularly the people that came up to me and would say things like, uh, uh, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Racism is an issue. We got to do better, yada, yada. And then one person even had the audacity to say to me, this is why we got to bring everything back to Jesus, you know, so that racism isn't a thing. And I'm just like, First of all, if we can't be specific about naming the issue, then, you know, people might miss it. I've said this a couple of times that if we're not specific about the issue and in tackling the issue, it more than likely won't get addressed. But more importantly, something that I've noticed in that as many people as complimented me on my talk, it let me know that when people were listening to my talk, they didn't think I was talking to them. They thought I was talking about other people. They thought I was talking about you know, those ugly, awful racist folks. They thought I was talking about people that were not them. And this is something that I've noticed in the church, you know, since then, is that oftentimes when we listen to talks in church or when we listen to general conference or when we read the scriptures, we use uh, these talks, we use these words, not, we use these words more often to convict others than we use them to convict ourselves. Right. We, We don't often believe that we are the ones being spoken to when we receive these words. And that's just something I found super interesting 
that uh, I could speak on something that had the potential to be so offensive, something that had uh, the potential to convict so many people, something that is just such a taboo topic in our church as it is. And then when I got all these positive responses to it, I'm just like, oh, I get it. Y'all don't think I'm talking to you. When President Nelson talked about leading Mm -hmm. out and abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, a lot of us didn't think he was talking to or about us. Right. And that's something that I feel like we need to do better with. Reading the scriptures more as a, like, as you said, letting our Mm -hmm. scriptures mark us and then also using them less as a tool of authority to enforce on others or to even oppress others and more as a tool of self-conviction, more as a tool of self-improvement. Yeah, I'm thinking about an incident at the Last Supper where all the disciples... When Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, they all ask, is it I? Mm. And this is, if you look at Matthew 26, verse 22, there's something very interesting because Greek has the ability to tag a question with the expected answer. That is, you could ask a question and not assume any answer, just a genuine question, and the answer is yes or no. You can ask the question and tag it in such a way where you're assuming the answer is yes. Like that's your, that is what you're expecting the other person to reply with is yes. Or you can tag it in such a way that the expected answer is no. And what they say is, Meiti egoe mi kurie. It's not I, is it? Right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, surely it's not me. So that's one of the, the brilliant things of reading the, the text in Greek is you can actually see what they were thinking. Like, it's not me, is it? And I think that's exactly what we, you know what? James, I was there. I heard you. I thought I didn't think you were talking about me. I thought you were talking about other people. Like, <laughs> like I, I literally was exactly what you said. He's not talking about me. He's other white people need to hear it, not me. But, but there are many ways that I am still swimming in white supremacy, and there's going to be tentacles of that that have infiltrated me more more than I realize. Mm. And it doesn't make me a bad person, right? But there's stuff that I don't realize that's problematic and it's it's a constant journey of improvement and repentance mm-hmm. and knowledge and picking yourself up and actually saying you know what it could be me yeah i want to go to uh, section 34 real quick now the lesson is primarily about preaching the gospel as i've said and i had to slow down a bit to hear what the lord was telling those he was sending forth and this first happened when i got to 33 because the command to open your mouths was repeated three times here. There are particular promises here that the elders are given that hit me kind of hard. One is open your mouths and they shall be filled, and the other is open your mouths and spare not, and you shall be laden with sheaves upon your backs. Around this point, I started to catch the significance of preaching the gospel as a means of experiencing the power of God, first off, and then also as a means of reconciling the human family. That's part of the reason we preach the gospel in the first place. We want to bring all humanity into one. Like as part of the fourfold mission of the church, preaching the gospel is really a means of reconciling the human family. All of it is about reconciliation, really. But the next thing I noticed was in section 34 and 35, where the Lord tells the elders that they become sons of God through the atonement. Now, I've heard this phrase before, like something went off in my brain. I was like, I've heard this before in the Beatitudes. So that's where I went. I went to Matthew 5, verse 9, where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they Mm -hmm. shall be called the children of God. 
I promise I'm going to connect these. So let me just tell you what I what I saw, what I hear as I read these. Now, this might be, be a coincidence, but it is named twice in these chapters about missionary service, about preaching the gospel, that faith in the atonement makes us children of God. And then in Matthew, we learn that peacemakers are blessed and shall become the children mm-hmm. of God, which leads me to make a certain connection. It leads me to believe that peacemaking and gospel preaching are connected and inseparable. Then I considered mm-hmm. the work that you and I do, Derek, you know, the work that we do on this show and something I've heard said in racial justice work. I think Esau Macaulay actually said this with regard to Christian living in America today. But what was said was that in order to be a peacemaker, you have to be a truth teller. And telling truth, yes, I'll say that again. To be a peacemaker, you have to be a truth teller. And telling the truth is not always easy. The Lord desires, he tells his elders more than once to spare not and to not be afraid. This seems to be the reason why he chastises David Whitmer back in section 30. He was more afraid of man than of God. He didn't rely on the Lord for strength as he should have, which again is another purpose of the wilderness experience. You're supposed to learn to rely on the Lord. The reconciliation of the human family does not come without the preaching of the gospel message. And in failing and failing to do that properly, David Whitmer got in the way of the Lord's peace. He was not an instrument of the Lord's peace in refusing to preach the gospel as he should have. Now, for folks involved in justice work, we are given the occasionally, if not often, unpleasant task of telling the truth about our lives and our experiences mm-hmm. and also about other people. You, you brought this up earlier, Derek. Jesus was specific during his ministry. He didn't come and say, oh my gosh, like I hate it when Christians want to try to come into justice work and saying, okay, yeah, white people did this, black people do this, and also white people, we got to do this, black people, we got to do this, as if we are equally guilty and equally to blame for where we're at. He didn't come and say, right. Jesus, he didn't come and say, yeah, the Romans are bad and some of my own people were bad too. No, he didn't. he didn't say that as if they were equally guilty about this stuff. He said, woe unto you Pharisees, woe unto you Sadducees, woe to the hypocrites. He named names. He named Mm -hmm. everybody. He said, y'all do this nonsense, y'all do this nonsense, and you want to be part of what I'm doing, you got to repent of those things that are particular dysfunctions of your community. That's what he said. He was specific about these communities' dysfunctions. And look what the Lord says, what he does say when he expounds on the command to open your mouth. The third time he says it in Doctrine and Covenants 33, he says, repent, repent. That's all justice work is at the end of the day, is telling people to repent. Because mm-hmm. what we're doing at the end of the day is just committing acts of injustices against specific groups of people because of their immutable identities. Right. So the connection that I made here is that this gospel preaching, this making of peace, this cannot be separated from the act of truth telling of being honest about where we are as a people and what needs to be happening in the future. You know, when you, when you have a couple in therapy, because somebody, one of the, Mm -hmm. one of the people in the couple committed an infidelity, you don't equally yoke the uh, couple and what needs to be done. You get, you got to get to the heart of things. Like I remember when I was a child, you know, me and my sister, when we got into fights, it was always important to my mom to identify who started it. Like, yeah, we're fighting and we both got to be punished. But because I started stuff and my sister retaliated, I had to be dealt with as the person who kept starting the trouble. You know what I'm saying? And this is what Jesus did. He 
did acknowledge what the respective roles were mm-hmm. in this reconciliation process, but you know, he was he made sure to speak to the people who were causing the most trouble or the people who bared the primary blame or had the power on their in their favor in this right. dynamic. This is just something I want to make sure is named because I don't think it's a coincidence that to become a child of God, peacemaking and truth telling mm-hmm. are required. Like I believe there's a reason these two things are inseparable. And I do believe, as Martin Luther King said, that there is no true peace, no positive peace without justice being done. Like the negative peace that he spoke about, which is just an absence of tension, that is not real peace. Mm -hmm. The true peace comes when justice is brought into the picture. And that's what this is ultimately about. We have to be able to tell our whole truths as marginalized groups. And people in privileged groups have to be willing to hear that whole truth and to live into that whole truth if peace is going Mm -hmm. to be made. That is why I believe the Lord was so direct about telling these people that they needed to tell the truth or preach the gospel and spare not. He didn't, the Lord didn't care about offending people in this sense. He cared about reconciling people. And in order for them to do that, they needed to hear the whole truth, even if it was going to offend them. And the Lord did acknowledge that in his conversations with Thomas B. Marsh. You know, he said, there are certain places I don't want you to go because they're not going to receive what I have for you or what I want you to tell them. But for everybody else, and for this work of preaching the gospel, he wants you to open your mouths and spare not. And he promises that their mouths will be filled and they will be laden with sheaves. This work of truth telling, that is all the gospel really is at the end of the day. That is all preaching of the gospel is at the end of the day. And that's where real peace is going to come from. And in that peace, we are going to become the children of God. Yeah, that is that is. there's a lot of great stuff there. I'm so glad you shared all these things. And it reminds me of the importance of the E in creator on emphasis. Because yes. that's what people get wrong. Yes. is That's why I put that E there. For example, to say, oh, there's stuff that people on both sides could do better. Yeah, that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. But that's not the truth that needs to be told. Yes. For example, let's talk about looting, okay? Oh, woo. Come on in so, here. Come on in here. So... So a lot of people, their first instinct is to notice the looting and to say, well, there's, you know, the scripture says clearly thou shalt not steal, okay? And yeah, they got the content right, but big deal. Like anyone can get the content right on that issue. Mm-hmm. The emphasis they get wrong. If they're focusing on the looting and and balancing that with the injustice that created the conditions so that people think that looting is the only option for expressing their voice that is a problem yes, like sir. dr king didn't support looting but he he says don't be surprised when it happens because mm-hmm. you're not doing the thing you need to do he says the, a riot is the language of the unheard mm-hmm. so my point is this crater can be a very good tool for analyzing not not only for guiding what you do when you interpret and apply the scriptures to make sure you get the scriptures right Mm -hmm. but for analyzing what other people say if other people are focusing on the looting and don't even mention the word brutality or lynching modern day lynching or systemic or like if they don't actually talk about the real problem they don't deserve to talk about the looting yep yep and i think i've said it many times that if you are not more upset about the 400 years of physical, social, emotional, and spiritual dispossession of the black body than you are about the looting, then you don't get you mm. don't get you don't get a voice. You don't get to say anything about this because like that is without a doubt 
the bigger issue here. That's what led to the looting and the rioting. We have, like, you can say what you want about the looting as long as you are more upset about the conditions that brought us there. Yes, and that's exactly what the R, the second R in Crater is for, is the, the rebuttal piece of it. Because, yes, it says don't steal. But then also we have narratives of the Israelites plundering Egypt on their way out the door. Mm-hmm. So having a more encyclopedic and comprehensive knowledge of the scriptures can help you not misapply things. And that's what I mean by getting the scriptures right. An encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of the scriptures. So I'd like to, to continue this talk about justice by going to DNC section 35 verses 8 and 10 where we have the account of miracles and healings. Here's what it says. For I am God and mine arm is not shortened and I will show miracles, signs and wonders unto all those who believe on my name. And whoso shall ask it in my name in faith, they shall cast out devils. They shall heal the sick. They shall cause the blind to receive their sight and the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak and the lame to walk. And the time speedily cometh that great things are to be shown forth unto the children of men. So notice how this account of the miracles is sandwiched between, well, it says, I will show miracles, signs, and wonders unto all those who believe. And then in verse 10 it says, great things are to be shown forth unto the children of men. So that's where we start. And then we get into the middle of the sandwich where it talks about not only the exorcism of demons and the healing of illness, but also the curing of disabilities. Mm. And we need to talk about some things. Yes, sir. First, it appears from the context that one primary purpose of these miracles in the 19th century was a public manifestation of God's power being found in the restored church. I'm curious whether impressing people ends up a more important priority than facilitating access for the individuals involved. Like, why were they healed? Was it healed to, uh, were the disabilities healed in order to improve the quality of life in a society that would otherwise be unfriendly? Or is it to say, oh, look at the uh, tricks that I can do, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to come back to that point. Okay. And here's my second point. Many people would assume that these disabilities are something that people automatically would want fixed, either in this life or the next. Some people will want their limitations fixed and others will not. So we can't assume on behalf of others in, in advance what it will be. Mm -hmm. You know, some people would be surprised that there's a deaf pride movement. Isn't that something we should assume that people would want fixed? Mm. No. We need to respect the initiative of the people most directly affected. For some deaf people, usually with a capital D, there is an entire language, culture, and community that would be exterminated if their deafness was somehow eliminated. And, you know, people have said the same thing about gay pride. Oh, isn't that something you should be ashamed of? Mm -hmm. And shouldn't you want that fixed? It all goes back to, like I said, the initiative of the, pe of the people. And, and let's talk about the transgender community, for example. And the transgender community is not a monolith. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many different experiences and many different narratives, and all of them are need to be heard and are all valid. And some of them want their bodies fixed in this life or the next, and some of them don't. Or there's different degrees of modification that they require in this life or the next. And so that mm -hmm. needs to be named as well. 
And I, as I have learned from Katie and Serena of the Holy Human Podcast, and everyone should go listen to them. Like, there's some groundbreaking truth in every episode there. Mm. But one thing I learned from them is that disability can be seen as our default status. Tobin Siebers has said, the cycle of life runs in actuality from disability to temporary ability back to disability. Mm. So disability is our natural state. Like, why would we think that that's the that being non-disabled is the the norm. Now, without erasing or minimizing the needs of disabled individuals, we can also say from another angle that all of us have physical and mental limitations of one sort or another. Certainly. No human can run a mile in a minute. No human can breathe water. No human can fly. No human can recite the sequence of prime numbers indefinitely. All of us lack certain abilities and in in that sense disability can be seen as the default now which of these limitations that we have get constructed as a disability is something that we will need to talk about let's talk about the fact that i cannot fly you know i've flown in some of my dreams it's a lot of fun have you ever flown in your dreams james i have oh good okay it's a it's a lot of fun but I can't fly. That is a physical limitation. That's part of my embodied experience. Now, is that a disability? I mean, it is depends. that something? Is that something that should be fixed in this life or in the next? Now, I'm. I think I'm actually totally fine with not have with not having my flightlessness fixed in this life. Like my life is not at all impeded by my lack of flight. Mm. I'm fine with not flying. I mean, it would be fun, but yeah, the, the world is also made flying. for not flying people. Exactly. And one thing to note is that every human culture and every human society is designed for flightless humans, assuming that no one can fly. Everything mm-hmm. about our civilization knows that people can't fly. Nothing's designed for, for flying people. Uh-huh. Okay. So the, in that sense, being flightless is not a disability. It's not something that needs to be fixed. Yeah. And let's go back to talking about several models of disability. We've got a medical model of disability that names and focuses on the physical or mental limitations of the body. And then there's the social model of disability that focuses on how the disabilities get socially constructed, right? That how these impairments or limitations end up being constructed this way. And disability theorist Michael Oliver defines disability as the disadvantage or restriction of activity caused by a contemporary social organization that takes no or little account of people who have impairments and thus excludes them from the mainstream of society. And when I first heard about these two models a number of years ago, I realized that people could automatically assume that one's wrong and one's right, that the social model is the correct one. But this is up to the individual person, that the disabled person may see that their limitation is something that no matter how society is organized, it still won't fix their problem. And so that's real too. So the medical Mm. model has its place, the social model has its place, and we need to respect how and what people need and how and what their access needs are and how they articulate and self-identify. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to this flying business. Okay. So I can't fly. It's not something that's a disability for me. It's not something that needs to be fixed in this life, actually. But, and here's where the thought experiment comes in. Imagine this, okay? You remember um, 
you know Golden Girls? I loved watching that when I was little. Thank and you for being a friend. Yep. Exactly. And remember how Sophia said, picture it, Sicily, 1920, right? Do you remember this? I didn't see this episode, no. Uh, oh, it's uh, in like almost every, well, there's in a lot of episodes. But anyway, so here's what I want you to picture. What if you put me in a civilization where almost all humans could fly? What if everything physically and socially was designed with the assumption that everyone could fly? There are no roads. There are no staircases. There are no ladders. There are no elevators. Everything is a built above the ground because people can fly. What would be like? What would what would life be like for you if you and a few other people could not fly, but everyone else could? That yeah, that's disability. Isn't it? Isn't that's it? disability. Okay. The limitation that we have, that we have now, that we can't fly, would become a disability when it's socially constructed by the way things are organized, the way things are set up. Hmm. So think about your body now. Is it disabled in, in reference to flight? Yeah. It's the same body in a different context would now be uh, subject to disability. So that gets back to the question about what should be fixed. In this society where everything is designed for people of flight, what should be fixed? Should I be fixed so that I can function on the same terms as people who can fly? Or should society be fixed and that there should be reasonable accommodations made throughout the entirety of the system from top to bottom for people who cannot fly? And this, like I said partly can help illuminate and recenter the question about whether disabilities should be fixed. Imagine if instead of fixing the deaf person so they can hear, that all of the hearing people learned one of the sign languages and adopted it for all public communications so that the deaf community is not linguistically isolated from the rest of the world. Mm. Which would be the greater miracle? <laughs> Really, which would be the greater miracle, making one deaf person hear or bringing the entire world to real repentance for ableism? Hmm. I'm telling you, this latter miracle would be far more impressive than something that could look just like a local magic trick. Hmm. Similarly, in a, many people want to talk about autism during April. Now note, for those of you that aren't aware, just so you know, do not support the organization Autism Speaks or yes, any of no. its initiatives. Mm -hmm. Their goal is the eradication of autism and the perpetuation of the privileged place afforded to neurotypical individuals. Mm -hmm. So instead, support and learn from the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. We need to always learn from the population most directly affected. I've said this before a number of times on this podcast. There's a slogan, nothing about us without us, that I've mm. learned from the disability community. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, another context in which society and its socially constructed norms should be fixed rather than, rather than the autistic individual. Yeah. Let's talk about the calming of the storm in Mark chapter 4. People have focused on Jesus' miracles of healing. Let's talk about this miracle. Did Jesus let the storm rage? and then calm the scared disciples so that they would be at peace with the raging storm? Or did he calm the storm? No, he didn't calm the disciples, he calmed the storm. He fixed the surrounding environment so that these people would be safe and be able to function. 
mm-hmm. within the midst of what otherwise would have been a storm. Mm-hmm. And this gets back to the second R of crater, the the rebuttal. Like, yeah, Jesus fixed some people, then sometimes he fixed the environment. Mm-hmm. That's the real miracle. The disciples said, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark four forty one. But in the end, whether some limitation should be fixed or not should be up to the individual. But what is not optional is whether we as a people should strive to eliminate ableism. That we should do, and that would be the greater miracle. If we want to impress the world with the power of the restored gospel, that's a miracle that theoretically we could do. Mm. Looking back to our text from the DNC and the use of public miracles, if the church really wants to impress the world with the power of Christ to show miracles, signs, and wonders to all of God's children, then we should work on what can be done. Mm-hmm. It is theoretically possible, for example, for society in general to learn sign language. That, that is something we could do. But getting it done would be a miracle. And there are many yeah. other ways that society can be reconstructed and that Christ's church should take the lead, like, you know, President Nelson said, lead out in overcoming all forms of prejudice. We should take the lead in transforming the world. And Jesus, I should say, isn't always recorded as, isn't always explicitly recorded as gaining the consent and input of the individuals he healed. But I think still it's consistent with his character and with some of the explicit evidence we have for at least some of the healings. In John chapter 5, there was a man who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, he didn't assume. When Jesus saw him, he said to him, Thelais hugies genethsai. Do you want to become well? He asked the question. The The KJV might be confusing to some people because it says, Wilt thou be made whole? But the will here is about the willingness, not about whether something will happen in the future. So yes, I like the fact that Jesus, at least on some occasions, asked and respected the initiative of the people most directly affected and those who bear the cost for these decisions. I just love everything you said, uh, particularly about the greater miracle that we could, that could be wrought among our people by simply granting or creating an atmosphere that's more accessible to other folks. You know, I was thinking that with regards, not just to the disabled community, but also other marginalized groups. uh, When you Mm -hmm. spoke about that, about learning sign language, I was like, crap, this might be why I'm learning Spanish, actually. Like about two Mm -hmm. years ago, I undertook the, like I felt prompted that I needed to start learning it. um, And the only hint of why came when I was like, I am going to be more useful in some capacity if I know Spanish. Like I will be granting people access to something they might not otherwise be able to get uh, if I didn't know the language. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm thinking about disability. I'm thinking about, you know, learning another language so that other people might be able to be served or helped. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, my current mission of getting more black folks in the church so that this space is, you know, more welcome, but also like does a better job at reflecting this global church that we want to be. So much of the miracles that we want to accomplish, I feel are ultimately about making 
this earth and our church a more hospitable place to everyone to you know reaching this goal of true reconciliation and i don't think it can happen if mm-hmm. we are not making an effort on our part to bring these miracles to pass of not necessarily quote unquote healing disability but of uh, simply granting access where right. none existed previously Awesome. So I want to look at what it says in DNC section 35, verses 17 through 19. So it talks about Joseph. It says, And I have sent forth the fullness of my gospel by the hand of my servant Joseph, and in weakness have I blessed him. And I have given unto him the keys of the mystery of those things which have been sealed, even things which were from the foundation of the world. And the things which shall come from this time until the time of my coming, if he abide in me. And if not, another will I plant in his stead. Wherefore, watch over him, that his faith fail not. And it shall be given by the comfort of the Holy Ghost that knoweth all things. So I've noticed several of these phrases. And in weakness have I blessed him. If he abide in me, and if not, another I will plant in his stead and watch over him that his faith may fail not. And here we see another example of checks and balances on every member of the church. Joseph is blessed in weakness, and we can see that his faith could fail. So we must watch over the president of the church to prevent this. Mm-hmm. We must watch o- over each other. I mean, no one's exempt. Yeah. We're all, we all made this trip into mortality, everyone, with everything that comes with it. Mm-hmm. This is how we sustain them. Yeah. And, and speaking of checks and balances, I want to connect this with DNC 35, verse 24. It says, Keep all the commandments and covenants by which ye are bound. And this is where a slow reading of the scripture is helpful. It says, Keep all the commandments and covenants by which ye are bound. And I will cause the heavens to shake for your good, and Satan shall tremble. And Zion shall rejoice upon the hills and flourish. Now, notice the deliberate nature of this wording, the whole by which ye are bound, which modifies covenants and commandments. This implies that some of the commandments and covenants that we know of are ones that we're not bound by. That's why it's so important to enumerate and classify these covenants. Mm. And I'm not going to go into a longer explanation of this, but one example is... Marriage. Earlier we were talking about this idea that some allies, straight allies, would forego and temporarily delay their sealing until all people can be sealed in solidarity with us. And someone said, oh, that's wrong because you are, you're leading people away and you're telling them not to obey the commandments. And I looked. I can't find an absolute commandment to, to marry. There's not, not all people will marry. Children, right? we don't expect to marry who like there's no absolute commandment that we must be married anywhere that I can find in scriptures. So when we encourage people to, to say it's okay to not be sealed until you're ready or to not get endowed until you're ready, these covenants are opt in. They're not forced on people like the language of the sealing talks about. This is of your own free will and choice. Like it is something that you have to have, the preparedness and initiative to do. It's not something that can be forced or expected or required on any timetable. So that's kind of my logic behind. And there's also no 
yeah, there's no commandment that says we have to encourage people to make every possible covenant as soon as they're eligible. That's not how it is. Mm. And maybe I want to close with um, something here in DNC 36, verse 2. It says, And I will lay my hand upon you by the hand of my servant, Sidney Rigdon. And this is the section, is this the one that's done to, uh, given to Edward Partridge? I'm not sure right now. But it says, And you will receive, and you shall receive my spirit, the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which shall teach you the peaceable things of the kingdom. So here we get back to the true nature of peace. And we have an obligation to be peacemakers and pursue these peaceable things of the kingdom. Mm. But I wish we had more of an emphasis on peace, true peace and mm-hmm. nonviolence than we currently do now in our church culture. Mm. Let's go ahead and move into these housekeeping items real quick. Before we do, want to remind you all that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Instagram and Facebook where else? Twitter. Twitter, yes. Yes. Twitter. We may be active um, during, I mean, gosh, by the time they hear this, it's going to be, conference is going to be done, but I was going to yeah. say, maybe watch our you Twitter can go during back conference. And look, I don't know. Yeah. Look at, look at these yeah. tweets that we may or may not be tweeting during conference. Right. Yeah. And so um, we're coming up on our two year anniversary and our yes. 100th episode anniversary. Woo! That's going to be, we should have a party with all of our, uh, with yeah. all of our fans and listeners and see what's going on. Yeah, I don't um, know. What is this going to look like? I, I got to I gotta ask the collaborators what kind of celebration they want to do because... Yeah, we should have a celebration. I should do a comedy routine. Oh my gosh, Derek. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. About to say. Yeah, you know. If the, if the people will it, then, you know, we, we shall allow it. But, you know, only then. Yeah, they're going to like seeing that. They're going to like watching you wrestle with it you know <laughs> and i'm gonna be cringing of, the entire time i'm gonna be like <laughs> squeezing a stress ball the entire time and you know um that reminds me of something i noticed in dnc 35 verse 24 this is the one that says keep all the commandments by which you're bound and satan shall tremble i also noticed this week that lil nas x was able to make satan tremble <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna, let's talk about him some more some other time. Yeah, little Nas X, you out there doing your thing? Good job, young blood. Anyway. Yeah. Um. Yeah. On that note, then, is there anything else we got to put the people on to before we wrap up? Nope, that's it. Special yeah. thanks to Tamara Kemsley for editing our episodes and also to David Doyle for uh, handling our transcripts. Thank you guys very much for all y'all do. Also, thank you to the collaborators who have been giving us feedback and engaging our content, helping us uh, produce a better show all around. We do want your input on how we should celebrate our two-year anniversary slash 100th episode. If there's nothing else, thank you all for uh, joining us today Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.